Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Start your countdown to the most delicious Sunday of the year at Whole Foods Market. The Easter in Bloom event is on. Experience it in stores from March 29th through April 11th with irresistible deals and delights store-wide. Save on feast-worthy animal welfare certified meats like spiral-cut ham and boneless ribeye. Then add a flash of green to the scene with savings on organic asparagus. Too busy to cook? Don't sleep on their crowd-favorite catering. Find all of that plus source for good floral bouquets and more at your local Whole Foods Market. Tony Lara is a New York-based writer who specializes in sobriety and sex. Got your attention now, right? She hosts the Recovery Rocks podcast and her work examining the cross-section of sobriety and sex. It's featured in Playboy, Men's Health, and Huffington Posts. I promise you will learn a lot over the course of the next hour. But first, Kevin Souza. <laughs> Hello? Tawny. Hey. Hey, what's going on? Let me plug in my, put in my ear pods. Do what you got to do. All right. Can you hear me okay? I hear you great. But first, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, definitely. I, it was so cool that you reached out. Yeah, I, I Googled you and I checked out your work and it's, it, it's cool. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, so I passed the test. <laughs> exactly. The more and more I do this, I'm looking for people in recovery and, uh, you know, who have different stories in recovery. And yours jumped out at me. And then I was reading about you. I was like, oh, cool. You know, New York City. And I was like, wait a minute. She's from, she, so you grew up in Waco? I did, yeah. I am originally from Northern California, but mom and I moved to Waco when I was eight. So I pretty much moved, uh, grew up in Waco. I like to start out with somebody's sobriety date. What is what is your sobriety date? November thirtieth, twenty fifteen. All right, November thirtieth, twenty fifteen. So about six years, almost. Yeah. What was that last day like? Like, what led you to? And I'm reading about you too. I thought it was pretty cool. You know, you don't have that quote unquote dramatic bottom, which I think a lot of people think that they have to wait on. Uh, yours was a little different. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I think that's it's an important thing to touch on. Uh, I mean, I, I knew for years that I, I definitely drank too much and I definitely, I had moments that probably should have been like these big realization moments. But um, for me, it was, you know, sitting in a pub in New York city um, after I had, you know, I moved from Texas to New York and sitting in the pub in New York and I'm just with my friends and I'm talking about how I don't have enough time to write. And that I left the pub and I realized, okay, I just spent four hours sitting, sitting in a bar talking about how I don't have time to write while drinking. And it just kind of clicked to me that there, there might be some correlation there. When was the first time you remember drinking, getting high, you know, controlled substance, that mind altering feeling? 
Well, I mean, it started, definitely started in high school, you know, partying. And it's a very stereotypical story of, um, you know, weed was my gateway drug. And then I tried a whole bunch of stuff. And then when I turned, not even when I turned 21, just when I got into the, started bartending and working in the Waco bar and restaurant scene, I started drinking pretty heavily. And like, even like I was like 1920, because it was just, when you know all the bartenders, everyone kind of let let you in. So it was just, um, yeah, switched to alcohol pretty pretty early on, and then I got sober at 29, like right before my 30th birthday. So it was, you know, a a good chunk of my life getting wasted. We're talking about formative years too. Uh, yeah. So we're a whole like evolution of of the person is not taking place. Because for me, it was at least, I was constantly pouring uh, alcohol or, or taking substances that would squash all my feelings. Yes, exactly. And I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. It was formative years. And, you know, I, I'm a, I like the conversation about, you know, how alcohol, well, substance abuse in general impacts arrested development of, you know, once you start self-medicating at a certain age, your development is halted. So, you know, I got sober at 29, but I started self-medicating at like, you know, 15, 16. So I was a 29-year-old with like this teenage mentality because everything was stunted emotionally and mentally in me. Do you have alcoholism in your family? Um, my father is now in recovery as well. Um, and my, yes, yeah, my, on my I have a grandfather who actually died of alcoholism and he's an alcoholic diabetic, which was not a good combination. No, yeah. Um, so he died pretty young, like mid fifties. And, so, um, my dad got sober. He's been sober about 14 years now. Oh, wow. So did you kind of see his life change through sobriety? Uh, and then that was something you kind of, for me, it was at least I had a friend who got sober when I was 18, uh, cause we were partying pretty hard. And then I had, my brother, who got sober uh, probably like 14, 15 years ago. So I knew there was a way out. Did your father, uh, did that plant the seed at all? It might have subliminally, but I don't, I honestly don't know the answer to that. He and I geographically were not very close. So like I grew up in Texas, like born in Northern California. Mom and I moved to Waco, but dad stayed in Northern California. So I would, you know, I would go visit him every year, but like, I wasn't, it wasn't like an everyday thing. I like, I wasn't his, I wasn't the huge part of his sobriety, you know? Mm -hmm. You mentioned, uh, like I, I just kind of doing a little research on you and reading, you said there was, there was trauma behind the drinking and drugs. And there was also, I mean, it sounds to me like, I think I had both. There, there were parts of trauma that I just stuffed away. And also I, it's just, it, it's in my blood. Uh, the alcoholism is in my blood. Describe to the person that doesn't know what it's like to have that, that double whammy. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I didn't have the self-awareness to correlate the two at the time. Looking back, I can see it's like textbook. Oh yeah. Like something happened to her. So she started self-medicating and then didn't stop until like 14 years later. Like it's textbook. Right. But at the time I was just going through so much emotional turmoil that like drugs were presented to me in like this fun way. And it just gave me 
like weed just gave me this sense of escapism, like, cause I was in therapy. I was trying antidepressants. I was like, you know, all of that takes a lot of work, right? Like it's a lot of time and energy. And then there's this drug or drink that just instantly makes it go away. Like, yeah, of course. Like I, I chose the latter. What was some of the trauma? Do you feel comfortable sharing that or? No, it's just, just something, you know, something really bad happened and I didn't know it was, I didn't know <laughs> that it was uh, really bad at the time. And it's something that I'm still processing through therapy now. Tr- trauma is definitely tied to my substance abuse. Well, and we talk about it too. Like we're never, I'm still uncovering trauma that I, like you said, didn't think was trauma. And, yeah. and we're never, we're never finished in sobriety, which is like one of the most beautiful things about it. I'm a different person than I was a year ago. I want to talk a little bit about your, 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 those formative years we talked about. How did you progress? Like, was there a moment in high school um, or, or when you were younger as a team and you're like, man, I, I love this stuff. I mean, it was, it was honestly that very first moment that I smoked weed. Like it was, I, I, I got high. I instantly felt light and no longer like I wasn't thinking about trauma. I wasn't thinking about family dynamics. I wasn't thinking about awkward teen, teen years, you know, even just like the normal puberty, that's really hard to deal with, you know, without all this other stuff. I was like, wow, I don't have to deal with any of this. If I just take this thing, then I don't have to feel reality. You know, obviously I didn't, (laughs) I didn't articulate it at the time, but it was very clear that, you know, smoking this takes me out of myself. And that's just something that, you know, then I transferred into alcohol um, just a couple years later and just like partying. I just was really into partying. I was a, um, a, just a social, social drinker. I just loved, I liked the party. Um, I really, I didn't drink alone a whole lot. I, I just loved, like I would go days, weeks, months without drinking sometimes. I often didn't, but I think that's important to discuss too, where, you know, people think that a drinking problem means you're waking up every morning and there's a bottle of Jack on your nightstand and you're turning it up as soon as you wake up. And that can be true for sure. But someone like me where I was a bartending party girl who when I drank, I drank until I blacked out. And that's also a problematic way to drink. Were you a good, were you a good bartender? I was a great bartender. And I honestly, like, it's fun. I miss it. Yeah. The interaction, the people, I think there's a lot, it's funny. It's, and it's, it's not so odd that you see people who are bartenders get sober and really flourish. Once they find those, the, the, or they rediscover, they tap into those those people skills they have. That, that is such a good point. I, you know, I I went to college, but I really think I learned a lot of what helps me out today from bartending, like connection, networking. Um, you know, I so in in Waco, I worked. I was at Tress. I was at George's Cricket. Diamondbacks, like, you know, I worked at, I bartended at all of these. No kidding. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I ran the gamut. You did. <laughs> I mean, for people Hewitt. that are listening from around the country, she mentioned yeah. like hole in the walls all the way up to the nicest steakhouse uh, in, in town. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, uh, I, 
I, uh, I, I liked it. I liked the job was fun. I liked the money was incredible. Um, I mean, it is, it's a fun job if you don't get sucked into it. You know, there's a lot of people that can work in the restaurant industry through college and, you know, they, they work a couple days a week and that's it. But for me, it be, it was my whole life. If I wasn't bartending, I was on the other end of the bar drinking with my bartending friends, you know? So it was just, it was all consuming for me. Did you have people in your life? Cause it sounds like, and then just kind of looking at your story, you were pretty functional. Did you have people in your life who were like, Hey, this needs, you need to stop this. Or was it something where you realized it, like you mentioned, sitting on that stool at that pub or after you left? You know, was it yourself mm-hmm. who realized it or did you have some help along the way? No, it it was myself. And I think it's because, or, you know, if someone did say something along the way, I don't remember it, you know? Yeah. So, um, because honestly, I was hanging out with people that drank like me. So that was that was it. Like I, there would be times when like, I'd tell my friends like, you know, let's not drink this week or let's only have one drink tonight. Or there would be times that like, I think I knew on some level that like, this isn't healthy, but then I would talk to my friends who were also like, you know, just like me. And they, and then it would just, it just didn't stick. They're like, no, we're fine. We're like, we're in our early twenties. We're having a good time. And, and it's like, there there's definitely people that can go through like a binge drinking phase of life, like in college or, you know, and grow out of it. And then eventually just, they have a glass of wine every once in a while. Like that's very common, but like, like I'm not one of those people, but like it's common, you know, a lot of people that I used to party with are quote normal drinkers now. And they just, they have a beer and that's it. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's so cool. I've never, I've never done that before. Where did you go to school, by the way? Um, so I was, I went to MCC, McQuinnon Community College, and then they have, um, they have a Tarleton program, which Tarleton, the actual campus is in Stephenville, Texas, but they have um, MCC offered the course, like the business courses on, on the MCC campus. So I was able to get my full bachelor's degree through MCC through Tarleton. And so you finish up here, you know, in central Texas. One thing I want to ask you too, as we move forward in your career, what was the, what was the drug scene like? Were you doing cocaine or were you just, was it strictly weed and alcohol? It was mostly, yeah, mostly just weed and, um, and booze. I mean, I definitely had fun with, with other party favors, but like the biggest, the biggest problem for me was definitely alcohol. And so how did your career progress? When did you discover writing? As a kid, I mean, I, I always knew that I wanted to write and I always did write, like whether it was in a journal or, you know, like when the movie Harriet the Spy came out, I, I was obsessed. Like I got a little yellow raincoat and I was like running around with um, a composition notebook, just like spying on people, like just thinking that I was inconspicuous, but I was very clearly like a weird girl in a yellow raincoat jotting everything down. But I just, at a young age, I, I was, I knew that everything had a story behind it and I was fascinated by it, whether it was, you know, I, I often tell my own story, but I'm also a journalist where I I do enjoy telling the story of others. And, um, 
that's always been something that's interest me, interested me. And, you know, but then once it, it kind of, uh, stopped once I, once I started using, I mean, I was writing at 14, I was writing for the, um, the Waco Trib had a teen section and I was writing for that. I was writing very controversial <laughs> feminist op-eds for the Waco Trib. Yeah. Which is um, a big deal back then. And especially here. Yes, exactly. So in the year 2000, you know, I was a freshman in high school writing about, you know, gay marriage, legalizing marijuana, like from a, from an articulate perspective. And I actually like, I got hate mail. I still have it. (laughs) I got hate mail from people. Um, But like, and that was the moment that really taught me that words have power. And that just really stuck with me. And once I, uh, then I, (laughs) you know, got lost in the whole party scene. And eventually um, I became a Zumba instructor <laughs> in Waco, which led to me getting my business degree. And I'm honestly really glad that I have, I'm a writer with a business degree now because there's such a large business component of being, you know, a freelancer running, you're, I'm running my own business essentially. Just, you know, to get the, just to get the connective tissue down. So you're running, you're, you're a Zumba instructor who starts their own business and therefore you move towards getting a degree in business. Yes. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. So it's the same. Yeah. So like kind of like being a freelance writer, I was a freelance, you know, Zumba instructor where I would host classes, people would pay me and then I managed the books from there. So that got me interested in the business world, um, business and marketing. And so, yeah. So like once I actually, once I finished, college I was I actually just got back into writing and eventually moved to New York and here we are almost six years later what was your don't not so fast what was your big break uh <laughs> what was your big I I, I want to get to I, I love the, the progress this I like talking to you a lot what was like <laughs> what was the break that took you uh from from Waco from Central Texas to New York City um I after I graduated I actually moved to the Woodlands for a year I wanted to get out of Waco, but I didn't really know what the plan was. Um, I just knew I wanted to get out of Waco um, and just explore other parts of the city. Like my mom is still there. I still love Waco. And I, you know, but I was just, I had been there for like 20 years. So I was like, okay, what's like, what's next? Um, So I moved to the woodlands, moved in with my aunt for a little bit. For people who don't know, um, describe the woodlands. The woodlands. Yes. Um, North Houston, very like, if you've seen the movie Pleasantville, <laughs> I say it's like that, where it's very like, perfect. <laughs> like, the, I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah, I think just, you did a good job. Very, <laughs> it's like, if, if, if you haven't seen Pleasantville, just Google it and you'll see like an image and you'll know what I'm talking about. But, um, so I actually, so after that, I got a job, um, in the woodlands with Lululemon and, got really, you know, I was already into the fitness world because I was a Zumba instructor. So then I got into yoga and, um, Lululemon is a a really good company that gets you, they're very goal oriented. So, you know, I work like my boss was kind of like a life coach (laughs) type Mm -hmm. relationship. And she, you know, really helped me figure out my goals and what I want out of life. And, um, I realized that I wanted to get back into writing and that's, that's what brought me to New York. How much was drinking a part of your writing? You know, I talked to a guy a couple of weeks ago who writes for TV Guide, and uh, we discussed that. I asked him, I said, you know, you, you think about 
the historic like Hemingway, you know, how alcohol mm-hmm. was a big part of of his writing and, and some of the culture with the beatniks. Did you experience that at all? No, not at all, honestly, because so like my writing, like when I was 14 writing for the Waco Trib, it I was like very coherent, like not using any substances. Um, and then from like 14 to 29, <laughs> I was really not writing at all. And that was like peak drinking. So it's like as soon as I got away from alcohol and or at least started to cut back from drinking, that's when my writing really began to flourish. And so you're sitting on that bar stool, right? I mean, like, it's, it's interesting. You talk to people who get sober. Was there all, like, we have these revelations as we evolve? Even when, like, looking back now, I'm talking to you. It's like, you know, you were 29, and, you, and, and to me, and sitting up over here in the cheap seats, it's like, okay, I want to be the 14-year-old, Tawny. You know, yeah. I, right? Like I want that. I want that fire back. I used to do so much creative stuff as a kid. I would make up these fake magazines. I would sit in front of the TV and broadcast and tape it. I would make up, you know, news like VHS tapes, and uh, you know, all none of that mattered once I started to drink. None of it. I relate to all of that completely. Like, like I said, being that you know young girl, being who wanted to be Harriet the Spy, and writing for the Trib, like all of that went away. Like once I started self-medicating all of it like my my grades dropped like I was a really good student then like like my grades dropped I lost interest in pretty much anything that didn't have anything to do with partying and you know it just it took me 10 years to get through college yeah that sounds like the bartender yeah the bartender (laughs) right college student uh, so yeah, you, I, I really extended the party, the, the college life as long as I could. Well, a good place to extend the party is New York City. So you get a job there. <laughs> are, are, do you go there from Lululemon? Are you still working under the Lululemon corporate umbrella? Or do you move there to freelance write or to write for a certain outlet? It, w- it was both. So I moved here knowing that I had, you know, I had the day job that, you know, it paid decently and it was good health insurance. So it like, it carried me here. Um, and I was just open to possibility. Like my, I didn't, <laughs> I, I think about the move now and I'm like, would I still do this today? Like I, you know, my hair was hot pink at the time. <laughs> um, I, I buy a one way ticket to New York city. Um, with like my only plan was that I, I had been selected to attend, um, a two week creative writing intensive at NYU. So that was my, like, I I could have just gone to New York for two weeks to take this class, right? But I was just like, you know, like full addict mindset. I'm like, nah, I'm just going to buy a one-way ticket (laughs) to move (laughs) to New York. Um, So, like, my first two weeks, like, I know that I'm going to be going to NYU and I am living in a dorm. Like, that's, that's it. I don't know anybody in New York City. I have zero plans. And, um but I'm going to make it work. <laughs> Did alcohol like, help you make it work? Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like once I got away from the party scene, I noticed that I drank less. Like once I stopped bartending, I would, you know, I was going out for drinks with these, my, these new friends from NYU. And, you know, we would have, you know, a drink or two after class and everyone would go home and work on their homework because it was an intensive, like it was, you know, every single day for 14 days, it was a lot. Um, so I was just, I was the weirdo that wanted to drink more. And so that kind of put a spotlight for me of like, 
you know, we're going out on a Tuesday after class to just kind of unwind and decompress. And I go to the bar and like buy a round of shots and people are like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. Why? <laughs> and I was like, oh, they don't drink like this. So like that was like a really big red flag for me. So one of the things uh, that's super interesting about you, when I look at your bio, it says sex, sobriety, rock and roll. Sex is first, Tawny. <laughs> That's the biggest fear. When I talk to other guys who are getting sober, where do we start when we're talking about this? Like sex, <laughs> sex and relationships. I mean, you mentioned kind of the shutting down of the evolution. Uh, when you're 14, you start to drink. I mean, did you ever even develop the skills to have a relationship? Probably not. No, I, I, I had a really, um, I don't, for me, like, sex and even just dating, even just dating was largely performative because I was trying to be what the other person wanted me to be as opposed to like owning who I am and like, and saying and doing things that I want. Like dating is really, really, really hard. Yeah. <laughs> sex is, sex is complicated. Like all of that is really challenging. And then you throw sobriety or alcoholism, or addiction, or, you know, substance abuse, you throw any of that in the mix, and it's even harder. So it's like, that's why this is one of my favorite topics, because when I got sober, there was like really no guidebook of like how to navigate sex and dating. So like, that's kind of, so like, really, my target audience is like, 30 year old me, who's like, what advice did I need at the time, you know? So how did you find your way? I mean, for me, it was a 12 step program. Generally, was it talking to other women in sobriety, talking to uh, other dudes? I mean, part of your story is you discovered, did you discover uh, your bisexuality before you stopped drinking or after? Um, yeah, so for, on the on the bi note, I've always been attracted to and, and dated men and women. Like, it's, it's always been me. I have two queer family members, so it's been very, I grew up knowing that it's okay. Like, I didn't have any shame about it. Um, why I tie my bisexuality to my sobriety is that I didn't think I was quote bisexual enough because most of my, all of my long-term relationships are with men. So I was like, Oh, well, if you were really bisexual, then you would have had more relationships with women. Um, so there was a lot of internalized biphobia that I didn't really get to unpack until I got sober. So that's, that's where that connection comes from. Um, and then, so my my program was honestly therapy, um, yoga, meditation, and um, something that I would not recommend to anybody was I started a blog <laughs> the day I quit drinking and documented everything on it. So, yeah. So writing, but like I look back at like those early posts and I'm cringing. Yeah. But I also love that I have that documented in a way, you know. It's funny. I mean, I know that uh, it's that expression. For me, it was, you know, it was a 12-step program, but it's also just really talking to other people in recovery or other, honestly, other people about recovery is also really helpful for me, uh, people who are curious about it. Uh, and that sounds like kind of what you did with that blog. And it is dangerous, right? When you first get sober, you're, you can be unfiltered. And uh, there's, a, <laughs> there's a reason why some people, uh, you know, recommend, hey, you may not want to date for a little bit. You, you just need a little time to kind of get everything together. Absolutely. And I, you know, 
I, I've definitely been to AA meetings and um, I am so glad that it's an option. It just, it, the, it didn't click for me, but I will say I met my partner in an AA meeting. So I definitely got what I needed out of it. <laughs> it, it, it is funny because it, it, I talk about this with other people that are sober, you know, there's, there's just more than one way for, pardon the term, but to skin a cat. I mean, there's so many different ways to do this. And somebody like you is extremely attractive because it's very obvious you're living a full life. Sometimes in, in, in the program, we'll say, you know, it's, you're wearing life like a, like a loose shirt. How did you find that? Well, I will say, and this kind of plugs back into the, the sex and dating as well, is that it takes a, a significant amount of confidence to get sober to, or even to just question your relationship and, you know, step back, drink, drink less. Like that takes a lot of confidence. So I always tell people that when people are like, how am I going to go on a date sober? How am I going to have sober sex for the first time? I tell people like channel that confidence that you have, that you had the moment you decided to stop drinking and that you have every single day to stay sober because like society has us taught that we need this liquid courage to like let loose in the bedroom or get rid of those first date jitters. And that's just not, that's not the case. Like we have that within us. We just have to tap into it. Start your countdown to the most delicious Sunday of the year at Whole Foods Market. The Easter in Bloom event is on. Experience it in stores from March 29th through April 11th with irresistible deals and delights store-wide. Save on feast-worthy animal welfare certified meats like spiral-cut ham and boneless ribeye. Then add a flash of green to the scene with savings on organic asparagus. Too busy to cook? Don't sleep on their crowd-favorite catering. Find all of that plus source-for-good floral bouquets and more at your local Whole Foods Market. It's such a lie. I try to tell people that alcohol and drugs were the biggest liars in my life. They, I, I, I was convinced that I needed them, whether it was something subtle, like if I was going to talk in front of people, I need a couple of drinks or to go on a date. And, uh, you know, I like the fact that you bring up that it is kind of a big lie. You mentioned it, sex and sobriety. What do you tell people about that? <laughs> That's a big question. It's what pretty broad, it? right? Yeah. I mean, what, do you, <laughs> how, what do you tell people who say, you know, I'm nervous about experiencing intimacy with somebody when they first get sober? I mean, tell them that definitely they're not alone. I mean, it's a really, it can be a scary thing, especially if they're, you know, we know as people in recovery, but a lot of substance abuse is, is connected to trauma and assault. And, you know, people that have experienced sexual assault, their recovery can be a part of that too. So like dealing with that and then having to reintroduce sex that's, that can be re-traumatizing. So, you know, I, I am not a mental health professional, but I, I recommend if, if you can afford it, definitely find a therapist that can help you um, or some sort of support group. Um, but at the very bare minimum, never do anything that you don't feel comfortable doing. And I mean, that applies to sober sex or just life <laughs> in general, you know, like if you find yourself having like so much anxiety about going on your first sober date or your first sober kiss. Like if you are so overwhelmed with anxiety, it's probably not the right time and that's totally okay. And if this person that you, you would go on a date with or sleep with is worth your time, they will totally understand that. It goes back to what you were saying, right? About your partner, like trying to be something for them. Yeah. That's a breakthrough. Exactly. That's, and that's a breakthrough moment in sobriety when you can start making those decisions for yourself. It really is. Like, if you can just say, like, you know what, 
I'm not ready for this. I mean, most people are decent. They'll be like, okay, yeah, no worries. Like, do you just want to watch TV? You know, like you just, but the people aren't mind readers. Like you have to tell them how you're feeling. And, and that's hard. Like a lot of people weren't raised in households where you are told to talk about your feelings. So that I understand how that can be difficult, but I, I will say that communication is the most important part to any relationship, whether it's romantic, family, friendship, anything like this. If you don't have strong communication, like what can you really build on? Was it uh, something where you found yourself flexing a muscle to have that communication and that confidence in sobriety? Because the first time for me, it was, it was not <laughs> the first time I went on a date when I was sober. I think I almost had, I almost passed out because I was, yeah. so, I was so nervous. Yeah, it's definitely flexing a muscle. It's something I still struggle with. You know, I I quit drinking at the end of 2015, and I'm I and I'm in a committed relationship. But there's still times that I struggle with wanting to please someone else over myself. And um, and there's definitely a time and a place for that. But like when you're talking about communication of you know you, you can start some you can start somewhere small where it's like if you're if you're kind of an easygoing person and your partner's always like, where do you want to go to dinner? And you genuinely just like, don't care. Just like pick a place, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like it can really like start that simple of just like, okay, I'm going to pick a restaurant. This is where I want to go. And like start flexing that muscle. What was more freeing for you uh, when you discovered, you know, or you were able to be exactly who you wanted to be sexually or, or when you were able to get sober? I, I don't think I, I wouldn't be where I am today without sobriety. Like sobriety got me, my writing career is thriving because I don't drink. I am fully in tune to myself as a, as a woman, as a human, as a sexual being, because I, it's not, I'm not clouded by alcohol. It's like, it, it all goes back to sobriety. You're in, you're in New York city. Uh, obviously we've had a crazy year. Um, but before that you seem like an extremely, social person how do you how do you tell somebody coming up behind you or how did you yourself start to navigate such a such a big world uh in sobriety you know social situations things like that uh like like navigating social situations in sobriety like going going yeah, going, to going out events. going to parties because you mentioned you you loved not only did you like the the drugs and the and the alcohol and the weed but you also liked you liked the partying side of it yeah I still do. I mean, I still am a party girl. I mean, I love, you know, that just shows up now in like dinner parties yeah. <laughs> or um, a tea party or, you know, getting a group of friends together at a restaurant or, um, you know, there's, there's different ways to like flex that extroverted personality. But I also learned that a lot of my extroversion was related to my, to my drinking. Now when I have like these events, like a big event, whether it's like, like I actually do host like big in-person events in the city or something like a dinner party, you know, I am exhausted, like mentally drained for like a day or two after yeah. that. Like it takes a lot out of me. And whereas before I wasn't, you know, when I was drinking, I wasn't in tune with how my body was feeling, which is, that's why I drank in the first place. Right. So it's just, I didn't really give myself that recovery time. I just kept, we kept the party going. 
I had an experience the other night. I was out with a with a friend of mine, a close a guy who I consider like a brother, and I hadn't been around him in a while. Anyways, I was with him, and you know, like some some drugs came out or whatever, and you know, on most days or hopefully, um, you know, I'm spiritually fit, and 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 it came out. You know, I didn't pay any mind to it. I still had a great time. People in the room knew I was sober. Mm-hmm. They were asked, and like, what a miracle that is. Uh, to be in a situation like that, for me, I felt so strong. I felt so empowered. Uh, and I was like, man, this recovery thing really does work. Yeah, it really does. And it's like, it sounds like you have a supportive community of, of people, or at least that were in that room, because that is so essential. Like, before you go to your first, you know, party or outing, whatever it is, like, make sure that your friends know like what's going on like even if you don't want to you don't have to be like I'm recovering from trauma and substance abuse disorder that you can say hey you know I'm going through some shit I might um I might duck out early or you know just letting them know what's going on with you and if any good friend will totally respect that and like and I think about you know I mentioned earlier like my partying friends from back in the day when I told them I wanted to drink less, they were not supportive. They were, if anything, they were like, yeah, whatever, just order shots already. Whereas now my friends are so considerate of like, they're like, Hey, do you mind if I order a glass of wine with dinner? And I'm like, do you like have your wine? I I, thank you so much for asking. Um, But it's, you know, that comes from, and it, I can't blame my friends back then. I also didn't establish boundaries. I didn't have a healthy perspective of who I was. I was also people pleasing a lot. So it was just this, this really like echo chamber of toxicity. Uh, one of the things I want to talk about is uh, your, you talk about trying on recovery as, as opposed to trying on sobriety. And I think, I think uh-huh. that, is, that is so interesting. There's people who listen to this podcast or people who may be listening to this podcast who, you know, maybe not, uh, they're not sure if they have a problem with alcohol. Uh, you know, what do you tell those people as, as far as the difference between trying on recovery and trying on sobriety? Yeah, that, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, it really, that, that article came out of like a pet peeve of seeing people doing like, a dry January or a whole 30 or, you know, some sort of drinking challenge. And then they celebrate on social media by posting pictures of a, of a mimosa. Yeah. And it's like, like, okay, <laughs> you know, like, what did you, like, what, what are you doing? Um, so I, I think that anyone that doesn't have, addiction or substance abuse disorder or alcohol use disorder, any quote normal drinker cannot drink for 30 days, 60 days, a year, whatever. Like it's, I think anybody can do that. And that's like pretty easy. Um, but, and I say easy because like, as opposed to like someone with actual substance abuse disorder who needs help, yeah. you know, that's, that's when I, that's what I mean by saying easy. Um, so, but, but recovery, that, that, that is not easy. So when I say trying on sobriety instead of recovery, I mean, like, don't just not drink for 30 days. Or, or don't trying, on, trying doing, on recovery instead of trying on, what, what is the one you want to do? Trying on recovery, right? Yeah. I yeah, mean, okay. I, 
I would recommend trying that where, you know, for example, trying on sobriety would mean not drinking for 30 days, mm-hmm. whereas trying on recovery would mean maybe you're going to a support group. Maybe you're talking to your therapist about your relationship with alcohol. Maybe you're journaling about like every time you want a drink, maybe you're journaling about that feeling that is prompting you to want to drink. Like that's, that's what I mean by sobriety versus recovery. Like anyone can just not drink versus actually doing the work. Like then why are, why are you trying out? Why are you not drinking for 30 days? <laughs> yeah. Why, just, why you are know, you stopping? Like, yeah. Like, what is the point? Is it just some, like a social media challenge you're doing? Or is it like something that you really want to learn about yourself? Like just, and so the reason that I, it's such a pet peeve of mine is because as you know, so many of us, like, it's not a trend. It's, it's not like a, it's not like a, oh yeah, cool. My six years is up. I'm going to start drinking again. It's like, it's not, there's no expiration date on our sobriety. Like this is our life. So to see people that are like, when I tell someone I'm sober and they're like, oh yeah, I did dry January. I'm like, okay. Like, what, so? How do, you <laughs> res- might, how, how do you respond to that? Kind of that's how you, that's, that's, that's how you respond. I just nod my head yeah. and internally I'm exploding because <laughs> I hate it so much. <laughs> what's, what's the biggest myth about sex in sobriety? That it's boring. The- the people think that I think that's just the biggest myth about sobriety in general. People think it's boring. I did. I was like, if I stop drinking, what am I going to do? Am I just going to have to like start quilting all the time and just like sitting at home and like read books all day and just like, who am I going to hang out with? How could I even date or have sex? Like I just had alcohol was just so tied every part of my existence that I couldn't imagine doing anything without it. And so, yeah, I, sobriety is not boring. If anything, I think like getting wasted all the time is boring because it's just the same thing over and over. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's nothing like when you find that, you you find that gear where you really are comfortable in your own skin and, and, you know, it's transitioning into your sex life and into everything else. And it's, it's like, wow. Exactly. It's like figuring out who you are without, without this substance. And that, that shows up in every aspect of our lives, you know, but especially to answer your question sexually, like sobriety doesn't make sex boring. If anything, it can make it even more special because you're fully present and you know what you want and you ask for what you want. And, you know, like it's, whereas for me, like I was saying before, I was just trying to please other people. I didn't really care much about what I wanted. But sobriety just kind of, like I said, gave me that confidence to get to know myself. What's your favorite topic when it comes to, to sobriety and sexuality? Um, that's a good question. A lot of people ask like how to get in the mood without alcohol, whether they're sober or even just normal drinkers that maybe have a glass of wine before they have sex with their partners or like, because even normies have alcohol tied to sex and dating. Right. So, so like, which I think is such a fascinating conversation. Um, So it's, you know, I, I recommend, you know, like kind of like when I was saying trying on sobriety versus recovery, like if you like, so why do you have a glass of wine with your partner before 
you're intimate? Like, what does that do for you? Does it help you relax? Does it help you get in the mood? Do you, does it help you lower your inhibitions? Does it help you feel connected? So like, I think, and I don't, no one's going to know the answer to that except for you. So I think figuring out when someone says, how do I have sober sex fun or fun sober sex? I'm like, well, what may, what, why did alcohol make sex so fun for you? And that's something only you can define. So figuring out what those things are like, Oh, well a glass of wine before sex makes me feel relaxed. Great. Maybe your partner can give you a massage. Maybe um, you guys can go for a walk before, maybe you guys don't do screen time um, an hour before. Maybe you lie in bed in candlelight and just catch up on your day before, you know, like what is, what, what do you need? Like what is missing like that? And I, I hate to say I'm answering that question with not really an answer, but it's really just like, because it's so different for everyone. It is an answer though. I mean, it's basically like there's other, you know, you call it a coping skill or call it whatever you want. You know, when you have that anxiety before you get intimate, there's different ways to get yourself comfortable. You do. And then there's also that connection element of like, I mean, alcohol quite literally disconnects you <laughs> from your body yeah. and from, from your partner and it desensitizes you too. I mean, so you really like people think drunk sex is really fun, I guess, because there's no inhibitions, but you're really not feeling a whole lot. So what, I don't, I don't know. Like that's why I would just encourage anyone who's asking how to have fun, sober sex maybe write down a couple things that why is alcohol sex so fun? (laughs) (laughs) What do you tell people um, that that aren't sure about being sober and aren't sure about having fun? Uh, I hate to answer this with the same thing, but it's like, I would just encourage someone to say, why is all of your fun tied to alcohol? You know, like why, like what, what, what is so great that, what happened when you were drinking that was so great, <laughs> you know, yeah. like I, I would just encourage people to, to note like drinking alcohol isn't an activity. Like it's not, it's not a fun date. It's literally just like sitting and drinking. Like that's not, it's not a creative date. It's not a fun, like, Hey, let's catch up over drinks. It's like that could easily be tea. That could easily be coffee. Um, I just, I hate how society has done this to us, you know, like they make it such a normal thing to catch up over drinks and, um, to where like, if you stop drinking alcohol, you have to explain it to people. Like that's crazy. Yeah, it totally is. That's like, so, so like, that is so messed up. Like, If someone were to say, hey, I think I'm going to stop doing coke, nobody would question that. But if you tell your tell your partner or your best friend, like, hey, you know what? I don't want to drink anymore. They'd say why. And it totally can turn the relationship on its side, which is scary. Absolutely. It really it really changes everything. And you figure out who your real friends are. You figure out if you're in a healthy relationship or not, you figure out the unhealthy family dynamics. Like it, I wasn't expecting that. I really thought that I was just going to not drink. I didn't think that it was going to have this ripple effect into every aspect of my life. 
some of the topics you tackle. You examine the intersection of sobriety and sexuality. What's what's the biggest discovery you made when you took a look at that? Um, I, I I think the liquid courage is that I think that is a topic that I'm kind of obsessed with right now. Whether it's you know liquid courage to get rid of first date jitters or to feel confident enough to ask you know to try something new in the bedroom, like alcohol is just so tied to that like even on really progressive shows like like sex in the city you know like terry bradshaw like the famous sex writer if she has to get drunk before she talks about sex with her partner then like what are we what are us normal people supposed to do (laughs) you know like like i just i i look at how it's represented and i get i think it's getting better but it's just so ingrained in everything that we do and um the fact that this is such a bit, the fact that like the sober sex conversation is so scary and overwhelming, that honestly makes me sad because it shouldn't be, you know, like it's, I wish that there were more tools or guidebooks or, you know, anything like that, which is, you know, essentially where my work is. But um, I'm just glad we're in a, a place, society is in a place where these conversations are okay to have publicly and there's, there's, I feel like the taboo and the shame is starting to shed. Yeah, I love you breaking the stigma, and I love the fact that you you're, you're one of those people out there that that folks can turn to. Uh, what moved you to take on this role? I mean, to write about this stuff. You mentioned when you were a kid, you were writing, you know, opinion pieces or or, or a, t- a teen section of the Waco <laughs> Tribune, and you were tackling uh, gay marriage then in two thousand. This is not the easiest thing to write about all the time, either. What moved you to take this on? Well, I've, I've always liked to rock the boat. So, you know, I, I'm drawn to the taboo. I'm drawn to controversy. I'm drawn to, you know, using a megaphone to share, um, to share what I, to share conversations and, and thoughts and, um, for good, for good, you know, like as a, as a resource, as a way to, to help and shine a light and, like I said, when I got sober, I was so overwhelmed by like sober sex and dating. And there's just, there wasn't a whole lot of resources out there other than talking to people, you know, like that's always like the best resource is talking to other people that are sober. Um, but you really got to look for it, Tony. That's the one thing. Like, like that's why, that's why I do this podcast. And that's why I think, you know, what you've been doing for so long is so cool is like, you know, it's out there. You're putting it out there. A lot of times, and I think it's great, right? We all have our own methods of staying sober and really becoming reinvigorated through recovery. But you have to go to a meeting. You have to go looking for it. I mean, it's pretty mm-hmm. cool to be scrolling through your social media feed and to see this writer talking about sex, sobriety, and rock and roll. I mean, that's new. Yeah, and and hopefully people like it <laughs> because it's, <laughs> And I, I think, you know, I get messages all the time from people saying that, like, thank you for writing about this. Thank you for talking about this. Um, because, like you said, it is hard to find that. Like, even if you are close to someone or even, like, maybe you don't feel comfortable talking to your sponsor about sex. You know, maybe you, you don't have a close girlfriend or male friend to talk to about sexuality or, you know, and, or, you know gender dysphoria or, like, any of these, like, really complicated conversations in sobriety. So it's like, I, like I said, at the you know beginning of our conversation, my target audience is always, you know, like late twenties, me of like, who, like 
I need help here. Like, what am I going to do? So I think about that, like, you know, pink haired 29 year old that was so confused <laughs> and um, who needed help. And I'm like, I'm writing to her. Yeah, because because it's not that popular to be growing up, uh, you know, or like like feel like a teenager when you're in your thirties. Nobody wants to. No, people don't love to, people don't love talking about that. No, it's it's a very very it's an awkward subject. It's it's just I mean, sex in general is a, can be an awkward conversation, and then you throw sobriety in the mix. Like when I meet someone and I tell them that I. Like, you know, meet another writer and they're like, oh, like, what's your beat? And I'm like, oh, I write about sober sex. They're like, huh. Like, <laughs> you know, like, they're taken back. Like, if I were to just say, like, I write about recovery or I write about sex, it would be like, oh, cool. But then they're like, oh, I've never thought about that. And so I'm like, if I'm in New York City, like, in, like, this, like, you know, progressive community and no one's thought about that, then really no one's having this conversation. <laughs> What's it like for you, uh, you know, somebody from from Waco, from Central Texas, uh, to be in New York and to see your stuff in Playboy, in Men's Health, in Huffington Post? Uh, what is that? I mean, is that a, is that a moment where you kind of have to pinch yourself? Oh my gosh, a hundred percent! Like I have, I always have those moments of like, like wow, like I see my name on the byline, and I, you know, I still have, I have my paycheck from um, that Playboy piece, I have that hanging up above my desk. And I look at that, you know, every day when I'm writing and I'm like, you got published in Playboy, never forget that. Like one of the top sex magazines in history published your work. Like, cause you know, at being a writer or a creative in general, there's a lot of imposter syndrome that, that comes with it. So um, I look at that and I'm like, okay, Playboy published you, you're, Maybe you're a decent writer, like you can do this, you know? And what you're describing to me there is a different coping skill of rather than reaching for a drink, you look at that check and you're like, oh yeah, that's right. And then you continue to yeah. look at that check instead of thinking about, you know, getting messed up. Exactly. It's, you know, you, I have like, like that check serves as a reminder. I have little like sticky notes on my desk that just remind me of like, you know, I guess like affirmations or whatever, just. Whatever you got to do to to take it one day at a time. It's really hard. Sobriety is really hard, and you know, never take it for granted, and do do what you can do to make it easier on yourself. Anything else you want to share with people about what you've learned in your journey, or, or you know, what you're living now that can help them? Yeah, well, you know, I would tell people that just when it comes to sober sex, um, just I think people know how they feel about certain things. So like, I would just encourage people to, to, to lean into that where it's like, how do I tell, like, I want to embrace my kinky side, but I don't know how it's like, you know, in your head, there's like, there's something you've always wanted to do. Like everyone has that thing. And like, know that as long as it's between consenting adults and no one gets hurt, like that's okay. Like, you know, like, let yourself explore that. And, um, or even if it's, you know, like, I want to go, I want to go on a, on a date, but I don't know how, like, just remember, like, you, you have to be yourself and you have to communicate how you feel in order for it to, to, to be a solid foundation. And I just remember, there's one more thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, and this is a crazy topic. We're not gonna have enough time to tackle it uh, in full, but codependency. 
You know, how do you see that playing out in, 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 in the bedroom, in relationships, when people first get sober? Oh, 100%. Like, like I've mentioned, trying to please other people instead of myself. Like, it could be something as simple as, um, you know, like not, not stating where I want to eat for dinner because I want the other person to be happy and not, I don't want to upset them or doing something in bed that I'm not necessarily comfortable with, but I know that my partner likes it. Like that's, I mean, those are just two examples of codependency. Like you said, we could do a whole other episode on that, but asking for a friend, what's the number one, (laughs) what's the number one thing people can do to break free from that codependency and sobriety in sober dating and sober sex? I mean, it it has to be like self-awareness and communication and you have to have the, you have to have the confidence and self-awareness to know what you have to have the self-awareness to know like what you want sexually or out of life in general. And then you have to have like that self-awareness to like be okay with it. And then you have to have communication to ask for it or state it or to demand it. You know, like I think those three all like all work together to to help you through get through codependency and that's a whole other form of recovery. You know, like once you stop drinking, you learn, Oh yeah, I have an issue with this. And yeah, I definitely have an unhealthy relationship with that. <laughs> so there's like, there's all sorts of unhealthy relationships um, that we have. Like, I think get like getting sober is kind of the first, <laughs> the first layer of the onion, but like, you know, there's, there's podcasts about codependency. There's books about codependency, coda meetings, like Al-Anon is great. Like there's tons of great resources out there. Well, you're a great resource, by the way, folks, it doesn't, it doesn't have to end here. The recovery rocks podcast. You can listen to that. It's on, you guys are on all platforms and uh, you know, your work is everywhere. Yeah. I mentioned playboy men's health and Huffington post. Where, where else can people see you on, you know, online and stuff. If I'm leaving anything out. Yeah, no, that's it. Um, recovery rocks is where we talk about recovery and rock and roll. And, um, my social media, Tawny M Lara and, uh, dot com is, you know, T-A-W- my website. T A W N Y L A R A. Yes. Yeah. T A W N Y L A R A. Um, you can, yeah, find me on all the social medias and, um, reach out if you have any questions or anything. Yes, Tony, you're awesome. And, and, uh, you know, I was, I reached out to you and you got right back to me and, uh, you know, hopefully we can help some people out with this, uh, you know, this hour. And I know you got a call coming up, but I want to say thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. This is great. Yeah, you got it. All right. And this will be up, uh, this will be up this Thursday. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Just send me the link and I'll, uh, I'll share it. You're awesome, Tony. Thanks so much for what you're doing. It was nice to meet you. Yeah. Nice to meet you too. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. 